Chance Gilliam, welcoming you to the Chance by Chance podcast. Today's guest on the show is an actor, a writer, and a professor of nonfiction at Oregon State University. She is wildly entertaining, and it was a conversation I very much enjoyed having. Please welcome to the show, Elena Passarello. Okay, Elena, the last time I saw you, you said, go to Pittsburgh, and then disappeared into the Parisian sunset, essentially. And <laughs> in the time since then, really? you did, you did. And I've, I've, I've wondered about it since then. Um, I, I learned uh, in the meantime as well that you went to undergrad in Pittsburgh, so you... You have an understanding of this city firsthand, but I no one's ever told me to go to Pittsburgh before, and I I really value your opinion. So I have to ask, what's up with that? I I, I have not been since this summer, but uh, it's still on the radar. Well, you know, I think being a writer, you can make being a writer easier on yourself if you end up situating yourself in a town that is kind of a balance between being artistically present and stimulating and affordable. You know what I mean? Like, so you don't have to go to New York where, you know, you're going to spend a significant period of time just trying to make rent. You know, you might find it, it might be more interesting to find a place where the rent is relatively cheap and there's great stuff happening, right? You also don't necessarily want to be in a place where there's nothing going on and the rent is, you know, you're in your parents' basement or whatever, but uh, Pittsburgh is a wonderful mix of both. There's a lot of grant money, a lot of writing series, a lot of bookstores, a lot of culture. It's really navigable. And then, like, I was there as an actor for 10 years and was quite comfortable. I had a car and a decent place. A lot of my actor friends had houses that they owned. So it's a, it's just this awesome, bustling, alive, exciting town where you can make shit but it's also like um, not gonna you're not gonna break the bank trying just to stay alive. Yeah, yeah, and and at the same time, it's a you know a significant step toward the East Coast and everything that's going on out there. I mean, for me being in the Midwest, uh, maybe a cool in between. Um, in there, you mentioned theater, which I also wanted to bring up. So it's cool that we have a segue so early on because um, at uh, I think maybe your introduction in in Paris, you you or perhaps during your roundtable, you said that um, you had started off as an actor. So I'm hoping uh, you could kind of rewind the time and, and take me through, like, that phase of your life and uh, what, whatever kind of, like, introduction to creative work it served as for you. Sure, yeah. Uh, I uh, So Pittsburgh is kind of basically, with traffic and tolls and stuff, the same distance between, it's equidistant between Chicago and New York City. So it's this great kind of theater mecca because a lot of people that want to get their plays up in either place, like New York or Chicago, they'll test drive it in Pittsburgh. And a lot of actors who perform in both spots, those are two of the three kind of big theater towns of the country, um, the other one being Minneapolis. Um, a lot of actors would live there so they could kind of fly to both. So it was just this really awesome, bustling, weird theater community. And for a long time, I lived and worked there as an actor. I've done some stuff in other places, but um, most of the theater work that I did was in my 20s in Pittsburgh. And I worked with a lot of different regional companies, and I did some voiceover work. Um, and I do think, I don't know, maybe maybe this is what I was talking about in Paris, but I sometimes I think people have like a native art language, if I can use that phrase, you know, like a, whatever you 
the first art that you started really practicing and solving problems in first, I think is kind of like the way that you process all art, even if you move on to another form. So like chance of yours music, maybe? Actually, theater. Um, I so I suppose. Oh, really? the, yeah, I suppose theater and music came around a, a, in the most significant way, like at the same time in my life. But they were both um, early on in high school, and and the way it went down was that I went to a performing arts conservatory, and uh, I, I during like during the day during school I was taking theater classes, but then um, was in a band at the time and and started performing um, in that regard. So uh, maybe I, I've got a bit of like a, a dual dual language in that case. That's right, you're bilingual. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think it's just, and I, I played music in high school too, but I don't think, I think like I really started, I, I was in orchestras and stuff and took private lessons, but I think theater is where I kind of cut my teeth and sort of, I, I don't know, it just, it just seems to be like where kind of my problem solving center is. So I think now when I approach writing, I still think of it as an actor. Like I don't have like one voice that I use, for example. I think I treat each project as kind of like a role, right? Rather than like applying my own take onto every project, I sort of get inside every project and try to embody it, you know? Um, hmm. I think I'm a great personal dramaturg, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because uh, I'd like to research, uh, just like I did when I was an actor, kind of the eras in which the subjects of my essays take place. Um, I think I think a lot about the body and how how to describe the moving body. I think I have a really physical uh, attention when I write, and I think all of that comes from that native language of theater. Um, and I like performing my work, which is an added bonus. I think a lot of writers are kind of, they hate performing their work, but um, for me, it's uh, it's uh, not so scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, so I'm curious, too, then, making the jump from theater to nonfiction as opposed to sort of remaining in the in the world of of make-believe and and going from theater to to fiction for instance um how did how did non-fiction uh make its way to you yeah i don't think i ever really wrote anything else i think i took like introduction to poetry writing or something at one point and i ended up accidentally in a fiction workshop at iowa by mistake once and <laughs> was too nervous to tell them that i didn't belong there but other than that <laughs> uh it's just a nonfiction. I think I, I, I am more, I think this comes back to acting too. Cause you know how like in acting you're taught, you're told where, what to say, literally where to stand, what costumes to wear, who to kiss, you know, all these, um, your, all these parameters are being applied to your performance and inside the cage of all those things, your creativity kind of works with all of those restrictions. Right. Sure. Um, and I think nonfiction sort of offers that because it's all about sort of like whatever you're doing, the relationships are reality and so they're real. So when you pick a nonfiction essay versus like, you know, speculative fiction where, you know, a dinosaur could run through at any moment or whatever, you're, you're being created within a set story or a set world or a set of historical parameters or something that you need to report. So I think, I think I, I, I think that comes from theater too. I think the nonfiction restrictions sort of align themselves with like you know when you get cast in a play that you're not writing you're there's the non-fiction world of the play right there's the truth of the play and it's how much money the theater company has where it's set all that stuff 
So I think that there's a parallel between the two. Hmm. Are there any other parameters that you have used um, with your work over the years, um, specifically those that other young people uh, attempting to tackle various projects for you know the first first or second time could sort of try out for themselves? Um, just knowing that oh, there is yeah. that kind of freedom in discipline, what's worked for you over the years? Yeah. Well, I mean, how much time do you have? Like, I think uh, <laughs> I, I am so terrified of the, the blank page or, like, the non-assignment that I think I almost always look for some kind of fake rules to keep me going. So my, my second book, for example, I, I was just like, I want to write about animals. And that was such a broad topic. I was just like, ah, I had like 75 <laughs> panic attacks. So I found this, um, <laughs> this, this ancient tradition known as the bestiary or bestiary. I, I pronounced it bestiary until the medievalist at the college where I teach was like, oh no, Elena, it's bestiary. But you know what I mean? A bestiary, uh, which is a book of beasts from like medieval, uh, it's the most famous version is in medieval England, you know, these kind of like almost encyclopedias of, of animals. Um, and there are all these rules to the bestiary. Um, like you could only have one animal per, you could only have one species in the bestiary, right? Because uh, they're always said to be kind of a moral at the end. And when I found this, this kind of book, I was like, okay, well, I'll just model my book after this existing thing. And if I have an idea that moves outside of it, I won't let myself follow that path. I have to make sure that it maintains this form. Um, maybe in a small way, that's not super helpful, though, for, like, somebody just gets starting out. I think in general, just, like, the most important thing to me when I'm writing is to always be kind of on nodding terms with the thing that fascinates me about the project. So I'm never just, like, writing to write. I'm always looking... I'm always looking for something that I'm very enthusiastic about that kind of keeps me going, right? Uh, and uh, so I sometimes, like, does, it doesn't matter what I'm writing as long as I can find a, a way to sort of keep myself focused on that topic about which I'm really enthusiastic. So let's say I'm just super excited about the fact that, I don't know, like, Nikola Tesla was in love with a pigeon that died in his arms, and I don't know what to write about that. <laughs> I'm just like, I just want to write that sentence together again. To get my motor going, I might um, force myself to think about um, like a song that reminds me of that and then look at the structure of the song and then try to tell the story within that structure. Or I might look at like a really ridiculously famous love story like The Notebook and turn it into a <laughs> script <laughs> between Nikola Tesla and The Pigeon. Or I might look... Um, for, I might go interview a pigeon expert and ask them about lots of different types of documents for like bird maintenance and then see if I could shove the story of Nikola Tesla in that pigeon to like, you know, care and feeding of carrier pigeons or whatever. Like, uh, I'll then, I'll, I'll look for like any kind of thing that doesn't have anything to do with any kind of form that doesn't mm -hmm. have anything to do with the subject matter other than it's top topically connected. You know what I mean? And then, and then it doesn't matter I, I, I'll be so busy trying to um, trying to just accomplish the formal uh, task that I, I won't get hung up on the fact that I don't really know what I'm writing about yet. And that can be really helpful. Often then I'll like unpack it and end up writing a straighter essay, but the little challenges I think are super sexy and fun. Yeah. And then 
sort of moving down through the creative process, I, I've started. Uh-huh. I've started to notice that that both for me and for um, some of the other people that that I'm friends with, um, you know, that leap from zero to one when you when you have the idea but you're wondering how to put it into play could be really difficult just to mm-hmm. just to get started. But similarly, um, that that move from like ninety nine percent done to a hundred percent done can be um, sort of challenging, just in that it can be difficult to tell when something is uh, good enough. If that's you know the label we want to put on it, um, in your experience, how do you how do you know when to sort of tie the ribbon on things um, when you've when you've got the you know the bulk of your work done? Um, just like putting those finishing touches on it. When do you ever know if something is is complete? Sometimes I'll, I'll, you know, I have like a sense of an ending, just like when you're composing a song and you're like, oh, this has gone on this long. I've had this many verses. You know, we've gone back to the tonic. Okay, this this feels like the end, you know. Um, But once I've gotten to the end, I'll be like, it doesn't feel finished. There's something about it that isn't like, I guess, good enough, you know, and then I'll just put it away. Uh, for a while, time is a really good fixer of things. Um, mm. If you're just like, all right, well, I've, I've, I've taken this piece as far as I can take it right now. I can't imagine changing it, but I know there's something about it that it's not quite functioning on all cylinders. Uh, time and people are the things that sort of help me um, know that. So either I'll put it away for a long time or I'll find somebody who I trust who could sort of help me through it. Um, but I will say the, the more time you spend putting pieces together, the more you get your own sense of doneness. And so there's like, this is done, but it's not good. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, this is really good, but I haven't figured out how to end it. You can, you can feel the difference between those two things. Um, if you have, so if you have the first thing, then I would say people in time. If it's the second thing, this is good, but I don't know if it's done yet. I find it's really helpful to start looking at models. Um, something that maybe isn't exactly like what you're doing, but something that kind of inspires you. This could even be another work of art, right? Not just like another essay or another short story or another poem. Yeah. Um, and sort of getting a sense of kind of the expressive arc of that and using that as inspiration for how to figure out how to finish something. Um, I was I had this essay that I was trying to write about Howard Dean, who I know, I mean, you're from the Midwest, you might know Howard Dean, but most people don't really remember him. He was this political candidate in 2004, who screamed really loud at the Iowa caucuses, and people were like, oh, he can't be president, he screamed, <laughs> which is in, in shade now, like in our current political system, but that would count somebody out. Oh, yeah. Um, but I was like, I think this is good, I think I wanted something, I don't want to stop working on this, but this essay is not, I don't know how to finish this essay, and so I, I started reading, David Foster Wallace has this insane essay that he wrote about John McCain's 2000 presidential bid. And I read that and sort of like, it was like a shot in the arm in terms of pace and speed. And then at the end of the essay, I found that he, he just goes crazy. Like he just completely drives the essay up a cliff. And that gave me a kind of license to be kind of wild. And then after like hemming and hawing for like two months, I finished the essay in like a weekend because I think that inspirational text sort of helped. So yeah, so the three things, depending on where you're at, would be give it time, find a friend or search for inspiration, even if it's not in the original form in which you're working. Cool. Uh, switching gears. What is the deal with Iowa sure. and writers? Um, because you, you, you did your master's there and, uh, 
I mean, it's already come up a few times in this conversation. Like, why is that such a mecca, um, Iowa of all places? I don't really know the, the story there. Okay, so um, my joke is always it's so cold and there's nothing to do there. You can't help but get great writing done. But um, <laughs> that, I mean, that's where my mind uh, goes, though. That's kind of the assumption I had. I think it's just because it's the, it was the first one. You know, it's a, that program is almost 100 years old for fiction, and it's, like, 80-something years old for poetry. Nonfiction, um, I don't think they got a nonfiction MFA until much later, but all three are considered to be one of the top, if not the top, programs in the field in the country. They have a lot of money, and they have this pedigree that, you know, that they've released. A lot of the people that have graduated from there have gone on to make books that people talk about. So Flannery O'Connor... John Irving, Kurt Vonnegut, they get, you know, incredible teachers like Marilyn Robinson. So I think that's why. But, I mean, honestly, I know a lot of people also who went there and felt, um, like poets who went there when I was in school, who felt like maybe people were trying to hammer their language to fit a certain form. Not everybody felt this way, but some people did. Or I know other people that went there and uh, didn't get the attention that they felt like they could have gotten if they would have gone to a program that was a little more low-key. So... It's got this kind of like it's like the Pat the Patriots. Like people say the Patriots are the Yankees. They're like, oh, they're so good, but like that doesn't mean that you can't watch. You can't have a glorious experience following another team or going to another program. Right? Yeah, like Steelers forever. You know, um, <laughs> I went to. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I teach in a low residency MFA program. I mean, low a high residency MFA program here in uh, Oregon. I have for seven years, um, and uh, we. Uh, we're great. You know, we've, we've, I've, I've, the nonfiction MFA has been around since we graduated our first people in 2014, so pretty recently. And, um, uh, and we have a very small number of graduates, but a significant percentage of those graduates of nonfiction have gone on to publish books. Hmm. So, um, you know, and there's a there's an amazing program in Fresno, California, for example, that runs a really great literary magazine, and all the people that go there become these happy, engaged citizens. So, you know, I think... It's got this reputation, but it's certainly not the only game in town. Um, and if anybody ever wants to know more about grad programs, they can totally email me. Um, I'll give you my email address at the end of the podcast, but I'll keep everybody listening. Cool. <laughs> hey, and um, I'm I'm wondering, did the did the job in Oregon bring you out to the West Coast there, or did the move precede the job? I yeah, I had never been to Oregon until my job interview. <laughs> wow! Just taking the leap. I'd seen the movie. Well, you know, I'd seen that movie Goonies. I really like that movie Goonies. So, um, and which was filmed in Oregon, and then the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie Kindergarten Cop was filmed in Oregon. So I knew it was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's great out here. It's a great. It's, if you're looking at a grad school chance, if you ever wanted to go, it's Holler. Um, it's a really cool school. Dang. Um. What and uh? So I'm. I've got my, my computer open to, to the side here. It seems like you've got, um, I mean, the classes are all centraled uh, in nonfiction, but you, you're teaching uh, quite a few different courses. What, um, I mean, what, what role have you, have you taken on in this school, and like, what, in what way are you interacting with, uh, with your students on the day-to-day basis? Oh, sure. Okay. Um, well, you know, we have an MFA in fiction and poetry as well as nonfiction, but they, uh, the nonfiction part... Is, is my bag, me and my colleague, the memoirist Justin St. Germain. Um, and uh, so we do workshops 
uh, where the you know we do this national search and bring this cohort together, and every term we do these kind of intense and fun workshops. Um, I am a thesis advisor to students, so um, when they're ready to write their thesis at the end of their graduate period, we do these really intense you know six month sessions where they put together you know uh, like seventy to one hundred pages of extremely polished prose. Uh, I teach them how to teach uh, because they teach. Uh, they teach the kind of like the freshman, undergraduate, and like introductory creative writing classes. And then I teach classes in things like, I mean, this is probably of no surprise to you, but I teach like a class on the, um, the intersection of nonfiction and theater. So plays like the, the Laramie Project or um, the Fires in the Mirror mm. or I'm trying to think of another, or The Exonerated um, Plays where people go out and do a bunch of interviews and make a play, you know, to devise theater. Also, like storytelling, like The Moth. Um, I teach a class in, in how to do that. Um, I really want to get a class going on radio drama and podcasts, but I haven't gotten that going yet. And then, you know, like, I teach classes on the book length essay, on um, 21st century nonfiction, on writing and submitting to literary magazines. We're a pretty small program, so. We all wear a lot of hats. I love it though. It's a it's a killer job. I can't believe I get to do it. Yeah, and uh, you know, you you. It sounds like you wear a lot of hats uh, within the university, but also outside of that, with everything that you've got going on. Um, and to to bring up, uh, yeah, radio and podcasts. Um, I saw that you're the announcer for Livewire, and uh, had had just been on the show, and they they asked you to to do the <laughs> announcing gig. Like, how how has that been? I know. Can um, you believe that? I was just like, what? Really? Yeah. It's awesome. It's like a, it totally is scratching my theater chops. Um, and we, the show they interview, or we interview a bunch of different types of people, a lot of writers. So we've gotten, I've gotten to talk to Chuck Klosterman and um, uh, Eileen Miles and Ross Gay and uh, gosh, uh, and then, you know, comedians who write books like Abby Jacobson from Broad City just Yesterday, we interviewed John Hodgman, uh, that funny uh, writer and comedian. Reese Darby was on recently, the guy from Flight of the Concords, and he nearly killed himself jumping off of the stool. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, it's, super, it's super fun. Um, and I'm, I'm, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'd do without it. Like, it really helps me kind of get that. It's just a wacky, weird NPR show. The guy who hosts it is the, one of the guys on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. So he's... Uh, Super sharp and smart. Um, yeah. And Chris Novoselic from Nirvana gave me a hug a couple of weeks ago because he was a guest on the show. Whoa. And it was like the best day of my whole life. Yeah, I no know. doubt. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Are you uh, a. Yeah, you should come to a show. Yeah, well, hey, I. Uh... You know, it's a it's a wonderful time to be alive. I always tell people, like, you know, you can, you can get anywhere in, in a day, it seems like. Um, and, uh, yeah, I. You know, I, I am enjoying my nomadic ways. I only see them continuing. Where are you now? Uh, I'm in the, the Midwest, so I've been doing some back and forth between uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin, and um, I'm okay. sort of uh, prepping for, uh, in mid-January, I'm taking a, kind of an extended trip. I'm going down to Texas, uh, where my dad is from, um, and I've never been, but I've got some family there. Going to check out uh, San Antonio and Austin area, and then um, going to drive over to to Florida, see some family, um, some old friends from uh, living down there a few years back. 
um, down to Cuba will be a first, and then visiting my sister in in Guyana uh, for a week or two, <gasps> like northeastern South America. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. So Amazing. I. Um, yeah, I I guess uh, I got back from from Europe uh, like mid September. Um, and it's funny, I, I feel like I'm uh, usually in some sort of, like, in-between uh, other things happening. But that's sort of what, what this time has been for me, is, like, having, you know, wrapped that trip up and then looking forward to um, the next journey. Uh, and, yeah, just working to, you know, balance, um, as we said b- before uh, starting recording, just to balance, you know, making money and plugging away at the creative work um, in the time mm-hmm. available to me here. Um, but yeah, the, the world is full of possibilities. It's a, it's a really awesome time to, to have popped up in this, in this experience we call life, you know? Yeah. It sounds like you're making the most of it too. That's really exciting to hear. Very inspiring to hear. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks. Um, yeah. That, I, <laughs> so are you working on a, a book right now? I mean, beyond, uh, like the hats that we've already mentioned, what else, uh, what else do you got going? I am working, I'm taking a sabbatical uh, starting in January, and I'm trying to write a book about Elvis Presley. All right, tell me more. <laughs> so, do you know Elvis Presley, Chance? I'm familiar, yeah. You, uh, cultural icon, yeah, Elvis yeah. Presley? Yeah, but you know, you're young, man. Like, you were born, what, 90-something? Uh, yeah, 96. Holy shit. Okay. So, I never met him. <laughs> Yeah, no, you, so he died uh, the year before I was born, and I graduated from high school in 1996, Um, and kind of, the book is kind of about what we're sort of talking about right now is, you know, when I was growing up, even though Elvis was never alive when I was, he was basically alive. Like, so many people talked about him so constantly that it felt to me like he was alive, Hmm. but as the generation have sort of proceeded, right, I have a much younger brother who was born in 91, um, I think he's kind of finally becoming forgotten, uh, not forgotten, but, but dissipating. And then this upcoming year, 2020, is uh, the year that he will have been dead longer than he was alive. He died when he was 42, 42 mm. years ago. So I'm going to kind of travel around, and I've been interviewing people, or interviewing people and having these experiences based on, like, ways that people remember Elvis. Like, uh, in September, I spent the night in his childhood bedroom. Um, I'm going to go on a cruise that's populated with Elvis impersonators. <laughs> uh, I went to his grave site um, on the anniversary of his death, and there were, like, 7,000 people there. Um, so I'm, it's kind of like taking stock of... Um, of like what, where we're at right now, uh, and and I wonder if maybe like finally his his legend is becoming a little less bold. Um, you know, uh, if he's sort of fading. Like, I mean, how many Elvis songs do you have chance? Can you name off the top of your head? Oh God, I I'm not even gonna try. I mean, I feel like he he was the sort of uh, artist though that like. See, I don't know if if he was covering all of these songs or if it's just that other people have covered his song in the time since, but I feel like there's a bit of a folk element to it in that uh, I'm sure I would recognize a lot of them, but maybe wouldn't be able to um, ascribe the the correct, you know, credits to him. 
see you are proving my thesis. Yeah. This is great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this in my book proposal. I spoke to a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> they need to know. You know. The millennials have spoken. Yeah, this yeah. is like, you know, Heartbreak Hotel or Love Me Tender or um, Jailhouse Rock. That's it. Yeah. So are you are you still in the uh that stage that you that you mentioned earlier just um sort of deciphering the the form of of what this is going to be? I think I figured it out form wise. So um uh I think I think it's uh, it's kind of an arbitrary form it's probably not worth recounting. So sure. right now I'm in the stages of of doing the first little bit of it because what I want what I wanted for this but my first two books were small press books. And I wanted to make, quote, a book that I could see when I went to the airport, you know, like, <laughs> like, like small press books are usually not in like the Hudson booksellers, you know, thing at like T-Tac or whatever, or there. Yeah. Um, and if you want a book like that, um, usually you have to do kind of a big proposal through your agent. So I got an agent and I'm putting together the proposal, which is kind of like, like the first chapter or two of the book and then an overview of um, where it's going to go. And hopefully, uh, I'm going to finish that up in December, and then my agent can send that around, and hopefully somebody will contract me to write the rest of the book. Yeah. Um, it's a little different in fiction, but in nonfiction, especially kind of this kind of nonfiction, that's the way that people like to play it. Hmm. Oh, brief aside, are you, uh, when you take that Elvis cruise, do you, is it a requ- requirement to also be an impersonator? Like, are you, are you going to be dressing up? Well, see, that's the thing, like, I... I was originally planning on having the whole book be about me trying to do it because I, you know, I have a performance background and um, in my first book, I, I won this screaming contest uh, that had never been won by a woman before. It's like Marlon Brando's Stella screaming contest. So I thought like it would be fun to sort of do that. But then I started going to all these, but they're actually, they don't like to be called impersonators. They like to be called <laughs> tribute artists. Okay. All this tribute artists conversations, I know, um, uh, competitions, and um, these guys are really good. And I also think that Elvis, if I am in a particular place where I think I would, I don't think I would be able to reach their level just because of what my voice can be, the way my body is shaped, um, the age that I am, you know, and I have, I have an old spine, a <laughs> forty-year-old spine. Um, so I've sort of shifted the plan to meet with them and follow them and talk to them and, you know, um, but not, uh, not, I, I thought it was going to be like me entering all these competitions and trying to become the first successful female tribute artist. But I really don't think, it, I, I don't, I don't know if that's plausible. Um, hey, to be fair though, yeah. you don't know until you try. That's a, uh, yeah, a lot of people are like, why don't you give it a shot? But I think, I think this is going to be better anyway. Um, and I'm certainly going to like, there's going to be some, some practicing, um, uh, and some, there's going to be some jumpsuit donning, uh, moments. Like I'm definitely not, not going to perform this. Yeah. And you know what's weird? It's like, like the champion Elvis tributes right now who are like winning $20,000 in competitions at Graceland. They're like t- younger than you. No they're kidding. like 22. Whoa. Yeah, so like, so they're they're like really far away from him in terms of um, you know, and, and these guys have to know every Elvis song frontwards and backwards. They have to memorize the moves. It's like intense, <laughs> and um, you know they're like they're like young enough to be my children. 
<laughs> hey, so plus one for millennials knowing about Elvis, huh? Like we're it, scores right. scores tied, yeah. I, mean, I, think, I feel like they're not even millennials; they're like Gen Z or something. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, they 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 would they would kick my ass in an Elvis trivia competition. They're they're really good. Hey, uh, a surprising number of them are men of color, which is kind of interesting too. Hmm. Anyway, go ahead. What do you think? Oh, um, one one other thing I wanted to discuss is towards the end of. The, uh, the writing workshop this summer, you gave a list of other um, programs and residencies and seemed to uh, be, be a, a great advocate for that method of um, work and, and discussing work with others. And I think, you know, in, in the, the majority of the, the interviews that I've done, um, people always talk about developing a tribe. And, and that seems like another great way to uh, just just meet people to kind of keep in the contact. But um, you want to share a few words about uh, what you've gotten out of residencies over the years, like for maybe for for those that are, are considering it, but uh, going back and forth on on whether or not they would actually attend uh, an event like that. On residency. Um, yeah, workshops or uh, like long term residencies. Um, any kind of extended writing program um, outside of yeah. formal education. Okay. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I think. Uh, I think the. I think you should go when you're ready, and you should go when you want to, and you should do your research because there are very, very different kinds of programs out there. Um, there are ones that feel quite formal, and there are ones that have like dance parties every night. Um, both of which you can get good work done at. Uh, I think. Um, there are a lot of ones with scholarships available. There are regional ones. I, I love them for, I like, I loved going to them when I was younger and I really like teaching in them now because I think they can help quickly develop a cohort for people that maybe don't want to go to an MFA program, right? I think one of the best things you can get out of an MFA program is you spend two, three years reading someone else's work and then for the rest of your collective career, you have somebody that knows your work well that you can call when you need to. Um, and I think residencies offer the opportunity for that, especially with social media now you guys can stay in touch. But, um, you know, not all programs are created alike. I think there are a ton of great ones out there, but, you know, some of them are maybe, for example, not that focused on nonfiction, or some of them might have, uh, you know, might not have the, the mix the diversity that you're looking for in the writers that it hosts. So I think the most important thing is to look really closely at uh, at the program and make sure that it does what you want it to do. And I'm assuming that there are a lot of reports, you know, on the internet, like people who have gone who have things to say. Um, sure. My favorite ones, I loved the Paris Ray workshops that we did. I thought that, I thought that you guys really made an incredible cohort and, um, the, like the level of trust that you guys had with each other's work right away, I thought was really fucking awesome. Um, I love Tin House. Tin House has summer workshops and winter workshops out here in Oregon, and they do a hell of a job. They have great scholarships, and they have karaoke. Uh, so you know, um, yeah, it's a, yeah, karaoke is good. <laughs> and I, I really like uh, Shawani in Tennessee. Uh, they they just added a nonfiction portion, but the people who go there seem to really stay in touch with people. Um, and I just went to an amazing one up in Alaska, actually, um, but it didn't have a workshop, so maybe not that one. 
Mm. All three of those degrees, Sawani, um, Tin House, and the Paris Writers Workshops are three great ones to look out for. Cool. Hey, um, I was talking to Hala a couple weeks ago and realized that I didn't, I, I didn't really know like how she ended up in Paris and re- really like it's the same for you. How how did that even uh, like come across your radar? <laughs> well, uh, Ben Percy, who is the fiction guy, um, he and I for some reason became fake nemeses on the internet. Like we had never hung out. But um, I just, I think I mentioned his voice once in a, my first book was about the voice, but I think somebody asked me in an interview, like Paris Review or somebody asked me in an interview, like who, um, who, who I thought had great, what writers I thought had great voices. And I think I said something about his voice and then we started sort of tweeting back and forth at each other. And then we started just kind of like insulting each other on awesome. social media. <laughs> As everything in the internet like devolves we- into eventually. Yeah, like 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 affectionate brother sister kind of rigging. His sister uh, went to school with me too, so I'm sure he learned that I wasn't like a serial killer too from her. Or so, so then when Rolf, who directs the workshops, was looking for faculty, he asked Ben, um, "Do you know any Fonzies? Like Fonzie from Happy Days who teach nonfiction?" And Ben was like, "Passerello." <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome that's how I got the job I got the job by making fun of Ben Percy on Twitter basically yeah that's a, that's a note to all the listeners <laughs> uh, that's right make fun of Ben Percy at all, at all uh, whenever you get the chance don't um, do that please don't do that <laughs> no ben, Ben's awesome I, I feel like uh, yeah all four of, of uh, you instructors um, I, I really looked up to and um yeah, you know, we had, we had a great cohort, but it, w- between the instructors and the fellows and everyone, um, I just sort of hit it off with everybody. Like, it was a it was a really fun month. Yeah, you guys seemed, I was jealous. You guys seemed like you were really making the most of your time in Paris. Both as writers and as just, like, partiers. <laughs> you were, like, uh, on the rooftop of all these fancy restaurants and going to all those, like, crazy Bastille days drinking festivals and just seem like you're you're really like sucking the marrow out of life so to speak. Nice. Um so glancing at your website, you've got all sorts of um events coming up. Uh what well, first off, like what is what is the nature of these? Um are you are they mostly uh presentations? Um and then Oh, uh, I think that's old. That's from when my book came out. Those are two years old. <laughs> oh no, you gotta you gotta update the site. I know, I'm so bad at that. But I do have, I'm going to be in Vermont for two weeks teaching at a low residency MFA program. And then I'm going to, uh, I've got like a couple visiting gigs at colleges in Maine and Rhode Island and Fairbanks, Alaska, and then Georgia. Uh, I'm going to Berry College in Georgia. And I think that's it other than Livewire for the beginning of, 2020 and that and Elvis stuff I'm just going to be running around the country yeah just yelling Elvis's name and seeing who goes I know Elvis no <laughs> <laughs> um and then uh I've got a question about about worldliness um it seems like you've crafted oh, okay. a a cool uh a cool way to you know be able to integrate work into travel how do you um kind of put it into perspective like do you 
how do you think of travel? I, I guess that's such a broad question, but for you at this stage in your career, um, it seems like you're, you're, you know, you're able to go and work in these different places. Like was travel always, uh, like a part of your life before, or are you sort of just making the most of it now? Like what's the, what's the deal with, with your adventures these days? I think I, when I was thinking about being a writer, I thought that being a writer meant like going to bookstores and having everybody line up to get your book signed. Um, but that doesn't exist, or at least it doesn't for me. Like, uh, so <laughs> what I've learned from making books is, um, like Oregon has this amazing tour where you go to all the tiny libraries in rural Oregon and have conversations with people who you know, like live in log cabins and train crows and, you know, chop their own wood. And then they go to all these literary events because they Mm -hmm. love books. And if you would have told me that like, no, you're not going to be on fresh air with Terry Gross, but you are going to have an incredible conversation with a lumberjack in Coos Bay, Oregon. And that's where your travels are going to take you. I wouldn't have, I would have been like, what? But honestly, Mm -hmm. like, it's like my favorite thing about being a writer is getting invited not to like, New York City or, well, I mean, I did get invited to Paris that one time, but, um, but to like Homer, Alaska or Manhattan, Kansas, like a lot of my travels take me to places like that. Or the last time I went to Maine, somebody, you know, I, I met all these amazing, uh, people who go to this military school and then they showed me a sauna where you could order pizza, eat pizza, and then go into a sauna in the back and drink beer. And then when you get too hot, jump into the snow. Um, so the, these small, I've been, I've sought out professionally opportunities to go to small places and get to know readers and writers there. And I think it was, I don't make a lot of wise decisions as a person. Um, I picked a really good man. And I think the decision to, to, to look for travel opportunities in maybe the less cosmopolitan places as a writer, it's, it's one of the better decisions I've ever made. My, my Christmas present this year um, uh, is going to be a map where I can put like hundreds of pins in all the tiny little towns that I've been to in the country to talk about writing. Um, and we're going to hang, like frame it and hang it on the wall and hopefully keep adding to it because there's like, I think I've, I've been to something like 30 states just to talk about my books or writing or other people's writing, mm. maybe even 35 at this point. And I want to just keep, it's just so much more fun than I ever thought it would be. I was, I figured it was going to be all like New York, London, Paris, Munich, but instead it's like, you know, boring Oregon, which is the name of an actual town that I've been talking about my book, or Manhattan, Kansas, or um, you know, Intercourse, Pennsylvania, and I, I just I, I love I love that part of my job so much. Cool. Hey, that was such an excellent answer to a to a poorly formulated question. I wasn't sure exactly what what okay. I was trying to ask, but I think uh, I think you answered it perfectly. Um, and then. Sort of appro- approaching the the end and be respectful of your time. Uh, I do want to ask um, whether you had uh, anticipated becoming a teacher or how how that uh, came into your life as well. Um, I think uh, there's a lot of people that that don't consider it that that would be um, really well suited for it. But how yeah how how did teaching um, come into your life? Yeah, I think, I think performance helps with teaching. I think I kind of was like, oh, I could do this. But um, when I was working as an actor, the job that I took, like my day job was an arts education organization. So I don't know if you had like assembly when you were in school, you know, when somebody would come up and like do a puppet show and then say, don't do drugs. 
like in, in, in elementary school, like I worked for a company that, I mean, that sent art groups to do assemblies. So like the symphony have like a, or the ballet or, you know, like a local tap, like people who did tap dancing. Um, I, that was my, my job was to sort of help get them to the schools. And I made like learning materials and I would go to in services and I would perform in a couple of those things. And it just, I don't know that I, I really liked that part of being an artist. Um, like, and they taught me all these methods on how to like engage students to, to work in the arts, not just like, so, so, so like now when I teach writing, I don't teach it like a composition teacher. I teach it like a, like an actor or like somebody who's treating it like an art form. Um, mm-hmm. And so for that reason, it's really connected to my practice, you know, like, it really feels like an extension of what I do as a, as a writer. Um, I just, I'm, you know, I come from a long line of teachers and, um, I think I'm kind of better at it than I am at, at acting or writing, but I don't, I don't, I wish I was better at writing than anything, but I think I'm pretty good at teaching. I, I, I just, I like it very much. I like, I like dealing with new people. I, I like how, they push you to be more open-minded, to be more progressive, to change with the changing sort of faces of the people that you have to teach, um, the different sort of levels of technical competency. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I think it keeps me on my toes in a lot of ways. But, you know, too, I think a lot of people think that the only thing you can do with a writing degree, which I have, is teach. And that's not true either. Um you know, nearly every Nike ad that you see has been uh, written and produced by an ad company called Wyden & Kennedy out of Portland. And their writing staff, their copywriting staff is almost entirely people with poetry degrees. Hmm. So just because, you, you know, like uh, a lot of people that get the MFA from my school in nonfiction go to uh, write marketing materials for nonprofits. Or um, I know one of my students is a a user-friendly writer for tech for Capital One and she makes a million, billion, trillion dollars and now when she, I go to New York, she buys me beer. Uh, <laughs> so, so teaching isn't the only option. I just think if you find that it, that A, it, you're good at it or you feel comfortable doing it and B, it sort of does help nicely into your practice, then yeah, you should totally go for it. It doesn't pay great, but um, you know, you get summers off, which is pretty rad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, it seems like a it seems like a good way to be able to wear those many different hats. Um, and a lot, you know, a lot yeah, of the totally. artists that I do come across are also teachers, and and I think that uh, you know it it probably furthers your own um, investigation of of various topics, like as you you know prepare uh, oh, yeah. material and and hear other other people's input on it. Um, just being on the other side of That's the classroom, exactly right. yeah. Yeah, no, it helps prepare your investigation with a really smart way of putting it. A plus, good job. Awesome. I'm going to feel that. <laughs> hey, um, yeah, if you uh, if you want to share uh, some resources for people to check out more of your work or, or get in touch, talk about grad school or, or the like, um, yeah. now would be the time to do so. Um, you know, probably the best way to get in touch with me, or the, at least like the dumbest, uh, would be through Twitter. I'm on Twitter all the time. Um, I often retweet opportunities for submissions or residencies um and you can dm me there my twitter handle is elena box so e-l-e-n-a-v-o-x 
Vox, like Vox Populi. Um, so yeah, uh, hit me up on Twitter. Cool. Hey, and, uh, thanks for taking the time out. I, I said it before, but, uh, yeah, I really, I really look up to you and, um, I really appreciate Aww. you, uh, fielding a few questions from me. I look up to you too. Yay. Mutual admiration society. I love it. Hey, uh, enjoy the sabbatical <laughs> and, uh, hopefully talk to you soon. Thanks. Be safe. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit chancebychance.com. And thank you for listening.